Hello everyone and welcome back to season six of the Great Women Artist podcast. In this series, I am so excited to be continuing my partnership with the brilliant Alighieri Jewelry, the wonderful team who have been supporting the Great Women Artist podcast for the last year and a half and with whom I have collaborated on with talks at the Alighieri Art History School. Keep posted for more dates to be announced soon. Female founder Rosh Matani started the brand seven years ago when she was going through a difficult time in her life and found inspiration and guidance in Dante Alighieri's Divine Comedy. With no formal training, she began hand-carving small wax sculptures by candlelight and casting them in recycled materials, depicting Dante's craggy landscapes and mythical creatures through fragmented talismans of imperfection. Committed to supporting local craftsmanship, Roche continues to manufacture in London's Hatton Garden in the surrounding six streets of the studio, where her team of 25 young women work. Each piece tells a story and is an invitation to unlock yours. You can visit her work at www.alighieri.co.uk and just for our listeners, Alighieri is offering a 10% discount across all products with the code TGWA at checkout. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from the Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I am so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is one of the greatest painters working in the world today, Lisa Yaskavage. Commanding and vulnerable, inviting and resisting, Lisa Yaskavage began her paintings of doll-like prepubescent semi-naked women in the early 1990s, often emerging from a technicolored, acid-like pool of saturated pinks, greens, reds or yellows. Yaskavage combines art historical colouring techniques for her images that are as much about an exploration of light and colour as they are about the female figure. Belonging to no one but themselves, her figures claim the gaze free from authority and their own sexuality. Born in Philadelphia and having received her BFA from the Tyler School of Art and Temple University in 1984 and her MFA from Yale since the early 1990s, Lysia Scavage has been a force in the New York painting scene whose incredible influence spread worldwide, especially for younger artists working today, as often mentioned on this podcast for her bold, radical, pioneering and innovative use of colour, subject, style and form. In museum collections worldwide, including the Hammer, Hirschhorn, ICA Boston, the Met, MoMA, Whitney, SF MoMA and many more, Yaskavage's work has been the subject of numerous solo exhibitions, including at the Institute of Contemporary Art, University of Pennsylvania, the Aspen Art Museum and the Baltimore Museum of Art, which is currently on view until the 19th of September 2021. But the reason why we are speaking with Yaskavage today is because this September 2021, she will unveil a series of new works for an exhibition with David Zwerner in New York City, where she is represented. 
Titled New Paintings, the exhibition brings together her signature colour field compositions saturated in jewel-like pigments of red, green, yellow and pink with figurative depictions full of theatricality, tension, dynamism and vulnerability, depicting models which recall the tensions being seer and seen or dramatic scenes derived from the studio or art classrooms, all of which are rooted both in art history and the present day. Licia Scavage, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Great. The weather is great. Get a good night's sleep. I'm ready to talk. Fantastic. <laughs> That's the, what we like to hear. And you said my name beautifully all the way through. Most oh, people, good. Most people get it right. They practice so hard. They get it right. And then by the third time, they stumble. They get nervous. You did very well. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I can't tell you what an honor it is to speak with you. I have seen your work numerous times, but I think the first time was in 2017 at the London David's Werner show. And I remember just being completely enraptured by the paintings. Not only was it the sort of tension I felt with the lavish erotic, fantastical, figurative scenes with these such freeing characters, but your use of paint. I'd never witnessed such contrast between greys and saturated oranges, these pools of electric colour which come at you from behind the surface. And then since seeing others in the last few years and learning about your earlier works, you use paint in ways that I've never seen before. So I want to start by asking you, why are you attracted to the medium of paint? You know, I have a sign in my studio that says anything is possible. And with paint, if you believe that, you can turn it into anything. And I also have another sign that says, fail better tomorrow. <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> and it's just sort of like I get there where I remember it all the way through, anything is possible. So the alchemical process of paint has always been something that drew painters to it, you know, mixing colors and putting color next to color, color on top of color. I, I've always had a feeling for it. It just came to me almost immediately the minute I touched it. You know, it's funny, I was listening to a podcast while I was waiting to talk to you. It's called The Daily from the New York Times. And it's about Simone Biles, which I was been fascinated by yeah. what's going on and actually athletes in general who are showing vulnerability. And I kind of thought maybe we might get into some of that when we talk about my work. Because some people who know me, they don't believe that I'm vulnerable. And then yeah. people who don't know me don't believe that I'm invulnerable. You know, it's a kind of a, a weird thing. But this Simone Biles thing is one of the things that's very interesting in, in that daily. They were talking about how her early life, she was a foster kid. And then her grandparents took her in. And they brought her to a summer camp. And it was for gymnastics. You know, millions of kids get processed through these summer camps where they do tumbling, I guess would be called. Like, you know. yeah. <laughs> and suddenly she was in flight, tumbling and twisting and turning in the air. Like imagine that the counselors were like, holy shit, this person <laughs> has a gift. Yeah. And I look back on it and I think that I was meant to do this thing. I, I was just given some sort of place to do this. And I really loved it. Secondly, and most importantly, perhaps I really loved it because it's a hell of a slog for someone who doesn't love it. It's really boring. Someone could call it wa like watching paint dry. You know, it's like eight hours to 10 hours a day moving, changing a color. And I find it mesmerizing. Yeah. When I look at your work, I can tell that 
you are just locked into that world because I think as a viewer, you just feel so pulled into it. It kind of like it never stops. You can kind of see that meticulousness. You know, they are commanding, they're vulnerable, they're psychologically intense. You're kind of stumbling into a world that you shouldn't be, but you kind of feel pulled into it. And so I mean, there's so much tension, but I think when I'm confronted with your work, especially having only just seen images of these new works, there are so many kind of layers and scenes within a scenes. I mean, how do you want people to feel in front of this work? challenged, probably. My ideal viewer is a fairly intelligent person that needs to reevaluate because I imagine myself having seen some of the best painting shows that I've ever seen and imagining myself being forced to reevaluate everything I thought. And so it's kind of like, oh shit, you know, oh my God, I got to reevaluate. I like to do things that are considered wrong. That's part of the challenge of being a painter. Any form of art is that you take, you know, I I am interested in sports. It'll be my second reference to sports. I'm not even that obsessed with sports. (laughs) It's more like watching it from a couch. Yeah, me too. (laughs) I like sports documentaries, actually. Once it's been boiled down and looked from a distance, you like documentaries about like the greats. Michael Jordan. Exactly. That's exactly what I was going to say is like, once you look at it from a distance, you say what the tipping points were. Mm. And somebody like, was it Michael Jordan who they said he changed the game? And then you look at it and you say, the profound thing is like, how do you change the game? I don't see the point of continuing with this without trying to change the game. Yep. So my ideal viewer is in some ways, another painter who feels like they're sort of forced to look at this and say, oh shit she's making me think or you know get mad at me a little people get mad at me a lot I've heard (laughs) why (laughs) you're just supplying us with fantastic painting I should probably not bring it up I should just allow you Katie to be thinking that like the whole world adores me well the youth in London do so that's where I'm at cheerio cheerio (laughs) youth in London (laughs) well my early days you should look at the early reviews they're a hoot in New York City, I mean, I used to get hate mail and people thought I was seriously damaging people's, you know, well, this is like an essay that I never even knew existed. I don't even want to give this woman publicity to say what it is. I could, but it was just like this whole essay about how I suck in relationship to one of the great masters of painting. And I'm just like, no shit. But like, why put this in a book? Me versus Vermeer. But the point is, there has been a lot of controversy. And I do think that it actually hasn't gone away. Well, the 90s were. I mean, think about like, it was the Whitney biannual of 93. I mean, everyone was angry at art at that point. Do you not think? I mean, I wasn't alive. (laughs) You weren't alive? (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to hang up now. Um, (laughs) Thank God for people who were born after 93. But I think where I was going with this was that the agitation around the work kind of helped to create a lot of dissonance. And it's like, I guess I was moving in the world of dissonance with the work because the work was kind of funny and angry and sort of twisted and punching. Some of the statements that I made around my early work is like the, the figures didn't like being looked at, the paintings didn't like being looked at, and the figure didn't like being looked at, and they were going to hurt you back. It was going to hurt you as much as it was hurting them. So the viewer actually really understood that. And it was like this kind of sense of why would a woman artist want to sort of paint paintings? First of all, back in the 90s, people weren't painting figurative paintings. That's something maybe the youth of London may not, or even the youth of New York, 
that's something that's been lost is like when I got out of school, we were kind of coming out of this idea of flatness and then conceptual art. And then if you were going to paint figuratively, people were painting much more expressionistically and collage-like. And I wanted to paint a painting which actually had a kind of a sense of a figure where it had air around it. And I was interested in the perversity of painting something three-dimensional because it was against the idea of flatness. Like making this early painting I made called The Gifts, where there was this little girl who looks pretty scared and her boobs are really sticking out of the painting. And I jammed a bunch of flowers in her mouth and I was like, shut the fuck up. And I jammed. So that's an extremely unpleasant painting that's actually kind of funny, which makes it even more unpleasant to be laughing at it. You know, that was for me a kind of a fuck you to modernism. Yeah. And it's also kind of a little bit of a fuck you to everybody. And people weren't saying fuck you, really. I was also at that time, and this is a second part, is like I am simultaneously curating a show of my best friend who died of AIDS at that time. His name was Jesse Murray. We went to Yale together, and he was a black student. He was gay. He was about six foot something. I was about five two. We were really a odd couple. Um, and he was found out he was HIV positive about in the first year. And I told him almost without even thinking about it, that I would be with him because he was kind of alone. He didn't have family. And I said, I'll be with you to the end. And I was, and I made a promise that I had no idea what the implications of that promise were going to be, which was, I was going to be in the killing fields of AIDS in the hospital watching man after man after man after man, you know, like all these people. I know women died of AIDS, but I just mostly saw all these gay men die of AIDS. Yeah. And I was way over my head, but I grew the fuck up fast. So the the things that I was going through at the time, I know you're here to interview me about my work, but what I was going through at the time when I was making those bad baby paintings is that I was also running up to the hospital to help my friend. And I guess to help him through his illness, but also to help him pass and with dignity as best as I could and to get him what he needed. You know, sometimes it was the newspapers, sometimes it was, you know, food and just to keep him company. And we became very, very close in the end. And I remember he died about five days after my opening of the Bad Baby paintings. And it's all mixed together for me, but that kind of fuck you was... I was dealing with one of the greatest strategies in terms of health, what was going on in the world. And I felt very isolated because most people didn't care because they thought it was, you know, the gay, the gay cancer. And this could have been prevented if they just didn't live that lifestyle. But I didn't feel that way. And it was like, looking back on it all, I was like 30 years old. And in a way, he always told me that he was giving me a gift for helping him, which was that I was going to be this kind of profoundly sensitive person that, you know, he was giving me so much back. And yeah. I wasn't really thinking about that. But when I look back on those paintings and the sort of anger and the rage and the fuck you-ness in those paintings, and I hadn't really thought about it all, is how much I was angry about what was going on there and how, you know, isolated we were because people didn't really care. 
about that stuff, you know? Yeah. But anyways, I'm not a curator. I don't, I don't have it in me. You know, I, I, listen, I didn't have kids. Not that I would have been, I would have loved to have had kids if for no other reason than just to con- control somebody. <laughs> I love, no, You've got I Philip. Love, You've got Philip. And, and you know, dogs, it's, you know, every 15 years, you know, they break your heart. <laughs> you know, it's like, you're like, oh, great. Now I have to decide whether or not I'm going to, you know, do this again. Now Philip's six and I'm like, oh, great. You know, he's halfway gone. Yeah, but how incredible that Jessica gave you that gift and how amazing that you can always take that into every painting you do. But it's fascinating you mention this because whenever I see your work, they just, they're completely embedded in this deep sense of feeling. And I'm fascinated to know where that comes from in terms of translating that into art, if it was something you discovered in your youth when studying. Because in a way, they remind me even of Italian Baroque artists such as Bernini, his Ecstasy of St. Teresa or the Apollo and Daphne, two sculptures, which are some of the most expressive Impressive works in our history. I mean, like them, it feels like this frozen cinematic moment. There's so much depth to it. I did spend, a, when I was in undergraduate school, I grew up in a kind of a working class family and we didn't have enough money to send me away to school. I, in Philadelphia, my mom was like, well, you got to go to state school. And fortunately for me, the state school happened to be Tyler, which is a terrific school. Yeah, And I wanted to go to this figurative painting school called Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts. And my mother said, you can't go there because it's too expensive and you're not going to get a degree. And I want you to get a degree. And I was like, oh no, I really want to go. I want to be a figurative painter. And actually my mother kind of saved me because I actually think figurative painting schools are not a good idea. I think it's really important for a figurative painter to study more broadly with people from different disciplines. Now that I look back on it, most of my teachers were abstract painters. I loved that school so much. And I really didn't want to go there until I found out that there was a third year abroad to go to Rome. Oh, wow. And then I was like, I'm going to the school. And it was like, I sometimes feel like, you know, speaking of Italian sculptures, yeah, that my life is a series of just dusting away the dust. You know, the way uh, Michelangelo, that quote where he says, the sculpture is in the piece of marble. I just have to get rid of the excess marble. It just push it away. I do feel like sometimes when I look at my life, I feel like everything is always just there. And I just have to push away the excess and just keep going forward. Yeah. My instinct was the minute I saw like whatever the presentation for the third year abroad, I was like, that's where I'm going. And we didn't have enough money to send me there. I lived at home. However, I was benefited by living at home because my sister went to college and I got to use her bedroom as a studio. And so I got the kind of ability to concentrate. The other kids were working at school. And of course, that's very social and there's lots of chitty chat. And I was able to bring my paintings back home. And really, my parents didn't bother me. And I was then able to work. I worked several jobs, which will bring me to the topic of the new paintings, one of which was modeling nude, which I didn't like doing. I'm not a nudist. I'm not a libertine. I'm not like into like nudity. Everybody would like to believe I'm really into nudity. Yes, nudity is amazing. I'm actually probably pretty prudish. Um, (laughs) And you're not going to catch me topless anywhere. Um, So, you know, it's probably why I'm fascinated by it all. But I did take my clothes off as an undergraduate. So a lot of the paintings in the new show refer to some of the kind of odd 
memories of what that was like, some of which were pretty weird power dynamics that went on. Yeah. I had some very weird experiences because I was kind of like a quote unquote star student. And then some of the teachers started to have like weird trip with me posing nude. And I don't know, it was kind of like a strange thing the painting called Masterclass is kind of much more about the like power dynamics of that kind of situation. Yeah. And I kind of playing with that a little bit, but it's, it's not, none of my paintings are specifically about anything. In some of these paintings, they're sort of like, I never really took Albers, those Albers color classes, but there's like memories of like people taking Albers colors classes, uh, Joseph Albers, because I went to Yale. There's like those color courses with the color aid paper. Mm. Anyway, it's, it's a lot of like memories about these kind of moments that I think kind of helped these paintings become kind of interesting images. And in the end, that's the responsibility of the painting to be interesting to look at. And, you know, layers of stuff that build up to an image that you can't take your eyes off of. If I find a painting something that I can sit there in my studio and not want to take my eyes off of, and I have pretty high standards for what that will be, then it will be something for you that you will also not want to look away from. But back to the Italian thing, I went there as a third year student after- This is when you were at Tyler, not Yale. Tyler, yeah. yeah. And I went there after doing whatever job I could get, modeling, lifeguarding. I like hustled and I yeah. saved up enough money to get there. And I was not disappointed. And I went on a class trip to the North during Thanksgiving. And we had the most amazing art history teacher who apparently lives in London named Flavia Ormond, who oh. apparently is still get on the podcast. She get her on the podcast. <laughs> she doesn't remember me because I was a little, I think I was a bit of a smudge. I wasn't interesting <laughs> and uh, I didn't stand out. You were curious. I, I followed her around, but she doesn't remember me specifically, but she does remember teaching this course. And she was profound. She was like so energetic. I mean, she must have been in her thirties or something. And she was like, like Sister Wendy. <laughs> she was like, off we go. <laughs> so after the class was over, she took us in to see things that she was curious about. And afterwards, we went into the Church of San Zachariah, and she put some money in the meter, and up comes the painting that changed my life, which was the Sacred Conversation painting. Yes, by Bellini. And the painting that I think you got an image of, which is called Pink Studio, and there's a subtitle yeah. there, Rendezvous, is kind of a sacred conversation painting because the sacred conversation painting is about bringing all of these saints together that did not live in the same country or did not speak the same language, but they're brought together in this light. And your first question was, what can painting do? Why is painting magical? And that painting is what painting can do. What he did with paint is he created an alcove that mimics that actual church. And he put four saints who didn't live in the same time together. And he has them all communing. That's the story that's being depicted. Each one of them was just recently violently killed because of their belief. So when you look at that painting, you realize this is life after death. This is a moment right after extreme pain. This is peace. And it's a most extraordinary painting because he brings these saints together. And then the title is The Clincher. It's like the sacred conversation. 
And you realize what the real sacred conversation is painting, the way that the figures talk amongst themselves is through color and light and movement and the language of painting. And so this pink studio is a sacred conversation for me because what I decided to do is do a, a, a sacred conversation of paintings that would never be in my studio and could never be in my studio at the same time in progress. So there's paintings from the early 90s in the 2000s and the 2010s and things like that. So there's a painting on the wall with a ruler and a tape measure and a stool called home. And then at the bottom right, what snuck into the painting, which I thought was really cool, was like I had a, a rectangle on the floor. And this is the way I paint. I mostly invent things. Then I was like, what would, what is a rectangle on the floor of your studio? Is it a piece of paper? Is it a canvas? And I said, maybe it's a dog bed. And so the I, when I had these chihuahuas who passed and I was really crushed when these dogs died, they're my first pets. So weirdly enough, I'm like, what? You cannot identify this as a dog bed unless there's a dog in it. And then I looked at Philip and I was like, Philip, do I put you in this painting? And then all of a sudden, like I'm just working and this big ear pops in. And all of a sudden, Lupe and then four ears pop in. And then it made so much sense. Like they're gone. But in paint, you can bring them back. You can do anything with paint. Anything is possible. So I was able to have a little sacred conversation with all these things that are no longer in my studio. It's all about what can't be, but you can make it happen. You know, there is no such thing as a pink studio, but in that painting, it's possible. Everything's possible. But what I love about the dogs being there as well, they're the kind of only live thing in the actual studio. Except for the lit cigarette. Yes, yes, I did notice that. I did notice that at the front. But also what's fascinating is kind of bringing back to what you said earlier about this Michelangelo quote has really stuck with me throughout while you've been speaking, because almost this pink studio seems like a kind of chipping away at your life in a way. Mm -hmm. Because what we see in this painting is a work from the bad babies on the right. And this was your series that you made in the early 1990s, these technicolor studies of figures from your imagination and also your bad habit series that you were working on slightly later in the 1990s. I mean, can you tell us about these? So it's like bad babies are just like, uh, I think there's four to five of them. And they are technically in the category of babies. They're anything from the category of invented paintings. The bad habits start where I make these little sculptures. I start making these little figurines and I'm painting from figurines. So that's where I sort of move into painting from something. So I basically decided I wanted to find a new way to draw. And I remembered going back to Flavia, interestingly enough, I should basically send her a check uh, for all residual. (laughs) Flavia Ormond, I owe you residuals. You come and get them, girl. She got to come get them. She got to show up because like, she actually put the knowledge in my head about the sacred conversation, but she also put in my head the fact that Tintoretto, also on this trip to Venice in, what was this, 1980? This is well before you were born. I, I don't know if, were your parents born? <laughs> Katie, were your parents born? Uh, yes, yes. <laughs> I'm kidding. So Tintoretto, she, Flavia told us that Tintoretto worked from wax maquettes to, and he put them in boxes and lit them with candles to get the shadows. Amazing. So he made sketches. Now that never left my brain. I have a pretty good memory. 
And then, so when I was teaching for years, I would tell my students who were very much in a hurry. When I was at school, I used to spend, I spent like, you know, four to five years taking multiple figure drawing classes. So I could draw a figure without looking at a figure. And most of my students were too lazy. I guess that's the word, lazy, (laughs) um, to be bothered to spend the time that I had spent learning to draw the figure. And being their teacher, I would say, you want to draw complex figurative scenes, narrative, you know, grand figurative scenes. You know, you should invest, you know, several years into learning to draw the figure. Well, I don't have the time. I want to do this. And I'm like, well, what about if you got like a box and you did some maquettes and, you know, well, I don't have the time. And so, and I was just like, well, good luck to you. Bye. Um <laughs> So what I decided one day that I would take my own best advice. And so I went to the art supply store and I went up to the sculptures floor and I bought this stuff called Sculpty, which is a child's clay. And I just made these maquettes. I so you sculpted at- them yourself because they look almost kind of like 3D printed there. So because I've seen pictures of mm-hmm. them. The first one I made by looking at the painting called Fawcett, and you look at the sculpture called Motherfucker. Yeah. It's a long story about why I called her Motherfucker. It was also because <laughs> nobody liked my work and nobody cared about my work and I couldn't get a gallery. So I figured you might as well just call it Motherfucker. But anyway, and I make five of them and they're like these little gal pals. And then I take the sculpture and I put it on a shelf and I put a clip lamp on it and I start drawing from it. And I was like, wait, and then I look at the drawing and I'm like, hmm, what did I draw? Is this a still life drawing, a figure drawing? And so I kept going there and I made like all kinds of work. So like the paintings I'm doing now are like in some way an abundance of everything from every body of work I've ever done. It's like they're invented. They've Mm. got the color field. They've got this, they've got that. They've got the interiors. I don't want to give up any ground. I want to take everything. Which is totally fascinating because, again, to that Michelangelo quote, it feels like everything is coming together. And I find it captivating looking at an artist's body of work and then riffing off and taking from earlier work and adapting it to the present and the present day as well. So, I mean, tell us about this new show at David Zwerner. It's titled New Paintings, and it will bring together works of the studio, as you've mentioned, but also figurative portrait-like works and these beautiful kind of romantic imagined landscapes. The other thing about this show is that there's going to be two rooms and the front room is going to be much more confrontational paintings. Hopefully this works out the way I'm hoping it will. The painting called Scissor Sisters. Yep. And there's going to be a painting of a bonfire with a image that is taken from Goya, the bonfire tondo. And it's just basically a whole lot of anger. (laughs) and the second room is going to be the four studio paintings and when I was trying to help our very excellent person who writes the press releases describe the differences we were sort of at first saying the first room and then there's this girl with her middle digits at you which is still to be titled Uh, the art handler called it the fuck you painting which is kind of sticking (laughs) so that painting was one of the first things I did in COVID (laughs) And then I did a series of paintings around that, but that was the best of the bunch. So I kind of thought, you know, at first I was going to do all of these heads of almost like criminals or just angry bitches, you know, like people were like just fucking angry, like angry (laughs) heads. But I just thought like one was the most powerful one. 
And so at first we were describing the differences between these two rooms as interior and exterior moods. And then I realized that's wrong because both of them are interior. This is not about the exterior world. I am not talking about like Scissor Sisters was in process three years ago. I have been working with images of internalized anger since the bad babies. Yeah. And it's kind of a continuation of my work. It's really a strange thing when you have a painting that you're kind of been working, like the study for uh, Scissor Sisters I made three years ago. And I just finally got around to making the painting last year. And now we're finally going to show it. And, you know, the context, because of the zeitgeist, the the context of the painting will be read differently. When I first had a show, I did a painting called Blonde Burnett and Redhead. And they were invented paintings, technically part of the babies. So the blonde looked, she had like kind of, her eyes were closed and she had this big blonde, wild looking hairdo and big puffy lips. And I remember this girl had been kidnapped and found dead. It's a terrible story. And they thought her parents did it. I'm just saying that sometimes that painting had been painted and people thought that I was painting about John Benet Ramsey, the child that was murdered and looked an awful lot like the painting. And there are these things that sometimes occur and there is this unbelievable coincidences that can happen between paintings and what's going on in the world. But I think that these four color field paintings of the studio and what could be misconstrued as the exteriority of the first room of what will be in the Zorner show, I would like people to understand that I see both rooms as interiority. And I'm very interested in simultaneity, where you can have contradictory and yet simultaneous thoughts. And then what I was doing in The Bad Babies is that I had a simultaneous body of work happening that had nothing to do with anything. They were almost like wallowing in babyish delights. So there is something about going on now. I'm sort of pulling the anger out of the paintings and kind of making them their own thing while then making these color field paintings about the sort of inner world of painting its own thing. Yes, I love the dichotomy between the two and the idea that they also run concurrently. But I'm also fascinated by the relationship between viewer and subject and the power structures between the two. Because like I said in the introduction, there is so much tension between the seer and also being seen. I mean, can you talk a bit about this? Like in the bad baby paintings, I was very clear when I made those paintings that it was the painting versus the viewer. When I made those paintings, I thought I had a a big failed show. And I thought of the viewer as being very powerful and dismissive and hurtful. And I decided that if the viewer was going to be big, powerful and hurtful, I was going to address them and get back at them. This is going to hurt you as much as it's going to hurt me. And me being the painting, I was speaking as the painting. Yeah. And I also identified the painting as a very vulnerable teenager, pubescent. I was creating a parallel that puberty was a memory that I had as being someone who was not in control of what I was putting out there, of being looked at. The way in which your visibility 
is putting signals out to viewers, aka men, as a female. So I realized that there was this perfect marriage between what I thought a painting might feel like if a painting could have a personification of feeling out of control about the way a sophisticated, arrogant viewer might come to a painting. So I decided to create these very vulnerable creatures that weren't quite real. And I put their eyes in first. They were going to lock eyes with you. Yeah. And I, Lisa, being the creator, was the first viewer. And there was this agitated relationship. And they so they were painted as if they were icons and they were fixated on you. But at the same time, they were dissolving to try to hide. But then they would come back at you. They were fighting for their lives. They were trying to hide that they were coming back. They were like, just like what I remembered being a, a vulnerable 12-year-old who wanted to disappear but then couldn't get away and yeah. just was fighting for invisibility and visibility at the same yeah. time. And obviously you've got the Baltimore show on at the moment and it's been a kind of it, all your work over the last 30 years. I mean, how is it now looking back on those vulnerable works and do you still feel like that vulnerable person is in the painting now? You know, I hope I'm vulnerable because you have to be a sensitive person person in order to make art. I'm certainly not a child anymore. And I'm not tending to a sick and dying friend right now. Looking at it, I, I don't know how I did it. Honestly, it it certainly toughened me up that that whole thing. And it was a great gift. I just cleaned my basement. I did, you know, the COVID cleaning your basement thing. And (laughs) I went through all of these boxes of stuff. And I went through like my tax returns. And in 1990, when I was going through all of that, like I made $8,000 US dollars. So like, how did we do it? How did we survive Mm. on that? But I, you know, am I, am I vulnerable? I think you'd never really get over it. Being an artist, you know, you want to be vulnerable to make your work, but then you always want to stay tough enough to be able to like deal with what life is going to be throwing at you. Yeah. And in a way, these are such obviously human qualities. And I'd love to ask you, what do you want people to learn from your paintings? I think that there's a form of policing that people do to themselves where they shut down a lot of avenues. Like they don't even dare admit to their dreams or their fantasies. I'm just not built that way. I took very seriously as a young person, this idea that we were supposed to challenge the authority and, you know, make something to challenge people. Yeah. And then as I went along, I started to see that what really is going on is that even people in authority want to see the things that they already know. And they, they're not willing to be open to being shocked or their taste being like rattled. And I kind of rather like my cage rattled. And I guess what I would ask is like, isn't that sort of the point of all of this? Isn't the idea of art is that we're supposed to be open-minded? And what happened to that? And I'm not just talking about sex. I mean, you know, people are so prudish about everything, you know, and it's just like, I really don't even think my work is about sex. I am aware that some of the paintings are a little bit stronger than others. But the, the thing that I do think is that the work has a tendency and I have a tendency and it is something that I adopted and held very strongly to is I am someone who comes from a class of people who have an imagination. Let's say I, I'm, I'm very versed in 
vulgarity, the peasantry of life. And I, after going through a very sophisticated education and leaving all of that behind for a period of time, I sort of felt quite ill at ease and it made me feel very rather depressed. I'm not by birth posh, but through training, you know, in America, we, we can change class through education. Yeah. But I brought with me, and it really did save me, that sensibility that I was very adept at. And the artists that I really admire brought that. So someone like Gustin, of course, and this brings us to the woman thing, it's much more acceptable in men and not acceptable coming from a woman. Yeah. And women and feminists have given me a hard time for a long time about this very thing. Thing, and I don't think that they realize that that's really what it is. Feminists tend to be upper middle class girls, women who, especially a certain generation of feminists, who actually, maybe my vulgarity is actually what's brushing them the wrong way, my class, in how it actually kind of rubs up against all of this high culture and intends to kind of expose a certain kind of roughness. Yeah. I broke into the museum and sort of shattering all the vases, but I intend to, and that's sort of part of it. And I just think people should really question, isn't that what they really had wanted? I thought sisterhood was powerful. And like I said, you think that the younger generation, and I believe you, that the younger generation isn't bothered by that because also I think a lot of the younger generation are from other classes and other races who are also breaking through this thing that used to be only upper class generations ago, you know, a girl like me and every word in that sentence, a girl like me couldn't have gone to art school. I would be basically just the art model. And I got to go to art school, take student loans and repay them. And because I was smart, I could continue to go to art school and go to Europe. When I went to Italy, my Italian grandmother, you know what she said to me? What do you want to go there for? There's nothing there but dirt. (laughs) I had to bring my love for those peasants forward in order to be true to myself. Yeah. Because it is who I am. And I'm also willing to be disliked. And I, I, I would also advise some of the younger artists to get their heads wrapped around not wanting to be liked all the time and enjoy some of the kind of stuff because you will not be liked all the time. It's the kind of thing where like, let's say you have a show and everybody loves everything. It's your first show. The disaster. It's boring. It's boring. No, it's, it's much worse than that. The way a young person's brain works is that they're going to feel obligated to make that work again. And that in itself will be boring for them because they will not feel like exploring. Yeah, yeah. And then ultimately, people will move on from that because you have to keep exploring. You have to find a way to... I I didn't get that much support early on. And my wings grew because I didn't have the roots and I had to keep finding my way around by myself. No gallery would take me for a long, long time. 
and I'm not crying little tears. I'm just saying it took me a long time to realize how lucky I was. I mean, of course, no one wishes that for themselves, but I will leave your audience, use the downtime to your advantage to maybe do something so crazy. And you got to learn, you know, exercise your wingspan so that when you are so-called successful, you can just continue to do that. Like, how do I continue to flip the bird to people and do whatever I want? How do you learn to do that? You have to learn to do that when you're young. You have to do that at some point earlier so so that you can do it later. And you got to train yourself early on. Just say, you know, politely, no thank you. You know, because, you know, it's just like somebody says, you know, do more of those. You're like, are you fucking high? (laughs) But I mean, what do you want, I guess, to teach people through your art, if anything? I guess the ultimate thing that I'd like my paintings to teach people is on a lot of different levels. Be your own person. Be free and make the fuck you painting, you know? (laughs) Everybody out there, make a fuck you painting. Lisa, you're scavenged. Thank you so much for just the most wonderful conversation. I appreciate it, Katie. But Lisa, we've got one more question. It's we always ask our guests if there was a female artist, living or dead, who you'd most like to meet, who would it be and what would you say to them? Oh, maybe Frida Kahlo would be kind of an interesting person to yeah. meet. But there's so many people I would like to meet. I, I will tell you the person that I did meet. I was in um, Santa Fe and I did a, a talk with Richard Tuttle. Wow. And stayed overnight at his house. And the next morning he was making me some homemade pancakes. And and he said, what would you like to do today? Would you like to meet Agnes Martin? (gasps) And then he said a few other things, which I don't remember saying because I pretended to be listening to the rest (laughs) of the sentence. And I, and I acted interested, like they were like, you know, like rocks or something. And I could give a fuck about what he said. (laughs) And I said, Agnes Martin. Yeah. So we got in his big giant white Cadillac, which apparently was not the kind of car he would normally want to drive. So Richard and I get in the car and Maymay, his wife is a poet and their then young daughter, who's now an artist in her own right. Martha is in the back seat, and then we off we go to meet Agnes. So we're driving through this treble landscape. It's like the bottom of the sea, almost like like that had yeah. been dried up. And we end up at Agnes Martin's place. At that point, she, she was maybe within a year to be no longer with us. But uh, so we pull up to the motel, which was a kind of a converted old age home. And everything looked the same except for this one doorway, which had like black eyed Susie's growing out of every crack. And then like whoever was the democratic person running for president at the time, signs everywhere. It was quite (laughs) obvious which room was hers. And she was kind of going in and out, in and out. And then she was looking at me. Oh, I remember this was actually really funny. Richard said to me as he turned off the car, he said, she may not know your work. And I was like, Richard, what kind of douchebag do you think I am? Like, you think I'm here? Like, like he's like, well, I'm just saying. I'm like, what do you think? Like, I think she reads art form or something. Come on. Like, I mean, honestly, give me a, he said, well, okay. I'm just, I'm just saying she might not know you. I'm like, uh, I love that. like, please. So Martha 
Martha was 16 and had just gotten her driver's permit. So we all decided, well, I didn't have any say in this. I was just being a fly on the wall so that someday I could tell Katie Hessel's story. <laughs> so I was just saying nothing. And so it was decided that we would get back in the car, but the child was going to be the one to drive us up to the top of Mount Taos for oh a lunch. And it's a hairpin crazy road, which on a good day would be scary to drive in, let alone a 16-year-old in a giant Cadillac. She was so adorably supportive of young women. She was like, I wow. want her to drive. Like, I was oh terrified. I would be honest. But I was like, we're going to die. You know, we're going to go plunge off a cliff here. At least you but- die with Agnes Martin. Exactly. That's exactly what I was thinking. My obit will be amazing. I always, you're 100% right. Richard Tuttle, Martha and and, and Agnes Martin all died in a fiery crash on Mount Taos. It's it's a good way to go. But we, we made it and we had a wonderful lunch. And I think I told like some really dirty joke. I I forgot. Everybody kind of like, because she was kind of a chaste person. And then she laughed and everybody breathed because like they were worried, but she kind of thought it was funny, whatever I said. So that was my, I did meet Agnes Martin story. That's amazing. Well, that beats anyone's story ever. So yeah. Isn't that good? So, and I survived and I survived <laughs> yes, the trip. Exactly. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for your time today and for this honestly just fantastic conversation. I, I know that so many, especially young artists are going to be so grateful for this. Well, thank you, Katie. Thank you all so much for listening to the 66th episode of the Great Women Artists podcast with the brilliant Lisa Yaskavage. It was so fascinating to hear all about Lisa's incredible career. And for those of you in New York City, do not miss her exhibition at David's Werner, which opens September 9th, and her fantastically curated exhibition, Jessie Murray Rising opening September 17th. As always, I have included all the links in the show notes. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Nada Smanelic. And if you have been enjoying this episode so far, I will be so grateful if you were to leave a review as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. 